You're listening to Myself with Others, a podcast about the life of ideas on and off the page. I'm your host, Adam Schatz, and my guest on this episode is the pianist Marilyn Crispell. Marilyn is one of the finest pianists in avant-garde jazz and creative improvised music. I've been listening to her work since the mid-1980s, when she held the piano chair in a quartet led by the composer and reed man, Anthony Braxton. I met her for the first time in 2000, when I profiled her for the New York Times, and I've never forgotten the experience of hearing her record her album, Amaryllis, with one of the great rhythm sections in jazz, the drummer Paul Motion and the bassist Gary Peacock, both of whom we've lost in recent years. Marilyn's playing interweaves the often opposed styles of free jazz piano, the ferociously percussive energy approach of Cecil Taylor, and the oblique introspection of Paul Blay. Her touch is luminous. She can evoke and stir rapture as few musicians can. This episode of Myself with Others has been sponsored by Chamber Music America. For over two decades, with the generosity of the Andrew Mellon Foundation and the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, Chamber Music America has commissioned over 500 original works by American composers, including Andrew Cyril, David Murray, Sylvie Courvoisier, George Lewis, Tanya Leon, Steve Reich, Julia Wolfe, David Sanchez, Vijay Iyer, and others. Chamber Music America's commissioning programs provide artistic support for performance, touring, recording, and archiving new works. Visit www.chamber-music.org for more information. Marilyn, thanks for joining me on Myself with Others. Thank you, Adam. You've always struck me as someone who's known and also been nourished by periods of solitude. The last period, of course, has been one of forced solitude because of the confinement that we've all experienced during the COVID era. You haven't performed in public much, although you did publish this lovely collection of poems that you sent to friends, myself among them. How have you experienced this very strange period as an artist? Well, I, I had <laughs> very mixed feelings, as I'm imagining people did, or still have. At the beginning, it just didn't seem like it could possibly be happening. It seemed completely surreal. Even as I got kind of used to the whole situation, sometimes I would just be overcome by a wave of surreality. I have barely played or even really listened to much music this entire time. I'm not sure why, I, I just haven't felt it, but I've spoken with other musicians who've said the same thing. Some of them really surprised me that they said that. So you feel the constraints of the pandemic have gone so far as to challenge even your primary motivations for being a performing artist. It's going to been a time of looking inward, taking stock of my life and what it is that I'm meant to be doing. 
in spite of the fact that I'm very devoted to music and to playing music, this is something that I experience on a regular basis. You know, when I, when I first got into playing the kind of music that I'm playing, it was inspired by an experience I had hearing John Coltrane's recording, A Love Supreme. Um, and it was a life-changing experience, which happened when I was 28 years old. Life-changing in the sense that in one evening, I suddenly knew where I was going. I knew what my direction was, and I was prepared to just do anything I had to do to follow that. Part of it was the music itself. Part of it was this extra musical feeling of communication, Coltrane himself, and this feeling of incredible love. It's very hard to explain, but I'm mentioning that because that that's become more and more a central theme of my life. Uh, because when I think about what I'm meant to be doing, it involves love. I, I feel that when I'm teaching extremely. Uh, <laughs> it's a feeling that rises up from me and that I want to do something with. One of your trio albums is called The Storyteller. Do you see yourself as telling stories in your music? In a way, yeah. I feel like if I play a concert, that I'm going on a journey and taking other people on a journey with me. And the stories involve emotions. And if the music is not connected to emotions, then it tends to not speak to me. The other thing that comes to mind when I think about your music is, in fact, emotion. I was recently recording a conversation for this podcast with a friend who lives near you in Woodstock, the novelist James Lasden. And James said to me that what's so distinctive about emotion is that it's pervasive and at the same time very elusive. Emotions consume space only to evaporate. And I was thinking about that observation while listening to your work. Um, and I was just captivated by these intensities of feeling that you express. Do you feel yourself being emotionally expressive while you're in the act of playing? Or is it something that just takes over you? Is it conscious or is it unconscious? Both, really. It, it's not like I'll think about something in my life that affects me in a certain way and then decide to play a story about that. But the emotions that come out are having to do with long-standing things or from the past or just emotion, maybe a nameless emotion. And, and that comment about them being very intense and then suddenly being very elusive, that is uh, <laughs> in a way of fits right in with Buddhist philosophy that uh, emotions are like clouds going across the sky and you watch them and then they're gone. You also seem very drawn to the natural world. Um, I'm thinking of titles like Amaryllis or, or Jasmine. And although you live in the city, you, you are very close to the country. Yeah, where I live in the country, 
definitely has a flavor of this city. I'm surrounded by cars and parking lots and machinery. But yes, I, I feel very connected to the natural world, even more so since the beginning of the pandemic. I've been spending a lot of time outside walking around in various parks and nature reserves and, and just even my neighborhood, listening to the birds. I've lived up here in Woodstock for over 40 years. And during this past year, I've noticed things that I never noticed before seen things in the animal world that I've never seen before, amazing things. So uh, somehow I guess I've had the mental space to be able to become aware of them. You were born in 1947 into a Jewish family in Philadelphia, uh, two years, in fact, after my mother, who grew up in the Philadelphia suburbs of Elkins Park. At 10, you moved with your family to Baltimore, where you attended the Peabody Conservatory. What was your family life like? Were your parents interested in music? I would say my mother was not really interested in music. My father loved music, but he didn't have a personal relationship to it. There were some records in the house, classical music and and kids music. And I also have a younger sister who is a very good dancer and singer and studied violin for a while. So there there was some music in the family. It was not a central thing. I think I I was in a way the the odd one (laughs) in the family. Because you were very precocious musically. You were playing by the time you were seven years old. Seven, yeah. Yeah, a teacher came to my house to give me piano lessons and I was very shy and I was afraid of her and I used to run and hide in the basement. I remember that. So I had a couple of those teachers when I was in Philadelphia and then when we moved to Baltimore, I went to Peabody Conservatory, the preparatory department for pre-college. And you had a teacher who encouraged you to improvise even though it was classical music that you were studying. Yeah, she was extremely influential. She taught at Peabody Conservatory, but she really focused on this summer music camp that she had in northern Vermont. And she taught composition, theory, harmony to pre-college people. I went there for about four years. Her Her name was Grace Cushman, and it was called the Junior Conservatory Camp which has now morphed into the Walden School because some of her students continued after she had passed away. Everyone in the classes, no matter what instrument they played, had to be able to improvise on the piano. So if we were learning an interval, for instance, perfect fifth, you had to be able to play a perfect fifth up or down from any note You had to be able to sing it. You had to be able to write it. You had to be able to hear it and identify it. And you had to be able to sit down and improvise using those intervals while the rest of the class clapped in time. So that was probably my earliest experience with improvisation and also playing for dance classes at the camp and then professionally when I got older. 
It's very interesting because I just read an interview that Graham Locke... The Braxton biographer. The Braxton guy, yeah. I just read an interview that he did with Bill Dixon. In that interview, Bill Dixon talks about playing for dance classes when he was for, with, with the dancer Judith Dunn when he was teaching at Bennington College. And he said that was very, very instrumental in in helping to form his sense of rhythm because when you're playing for classes you have to be in time when i was playing classical music i was playing in a very rubato way you know i I wasn't really playing in time as much as i could have been playing for those dance classes really sort of whipped me into shape in your last year of high school the civil rights act passed and You went with a group of friends from your high school to a cafe that until then had been segregated. Uh, In Baltimore at that time, all of the high schools were either male or female, except for three. So I went to an inner city school called Western High School. Many of my friends there were African American. And we, after school, every day would walk somewhere to get like dessert and stuff sit at sit at the soda fountains there was a cafe interestingly enough called the white tower <laughs> right right across the street from the school which was segregated which we couldn't go to together and uh, and I never went there alone either the day the civil rights law passed we all went over there and sat down and they couldn't throw us out but they were not happy that we were there. And um, they set the table by literally throwing the silverware down on the table. When, when this waitress was getting ready to take our order, we just got up and walked out. There was a lot of stuff like that going on. I think in those days, even though I had close girlfriends who were not white, because I always gravitated towards people who were not American, who were not white. I don't know. I just, I just did because I didn't feel like I fit in anywhere, you know, and really until I went to that music camp and until I connected with the people I started playing improvised music with. I I don't think in those days, I know (laughs) that that, that, yeah, I know that I wasn't truly aware of all or maybe hardly any of the stuff that they were dealing with as African-American people, as black people in this country. Because other than occasionally making a few comments here and there, they didn't really talk about it to me. I would go to this friend's house for her birthday party. I'd be the only white person there. And I I didn't really think about it. They were like my friends. But now I wish I could go back and find them. And you wouldn't have known, of course, at that time that much of the work that you were going to create as a musician would be in the field of black creative music. No. You ended up going to the New England Conservatory. You didn't study jazz. You studied classical composition and piano, am I right? Yes, my first year there, I studied composition with Robert Cogan. 
after the first year, I switched to just being a piano major, partly because I never seemed to be able to get caught up with my work as a composition major, and it felt like not the direction I wanted to be going in. I wanted to actually work on the piano, and I had a teacher there, Lucille Monaghan, who helped incredibly to free up my technique. When I was there, what really interested me was playing chamber music. I never really wanted to be a soloist, but I was interested in playing in ensembles with other people, which I, looking back on it, I see as kind of a foreshadowing of, of what I ended up doing. What kind of music spoke to you at that time? Was it contemporary classical music uh, or the 19th century repertoire or Baroque music? What, what were you listening to? I was drawn mostly to Baroque music. In fact, I minored in harpsichord. Baroque music and contemporary classical music, and not a lot in between. I wasn't drawn to a lot in between. Since I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate Beethoven a lot more than I did in those days. He wrote a lot of really profound music, which I think I was too immature to really appreciate. But I was into Bach and Glenn Gould and the Swingle Singers and all that. You're not a religious person, Marilyn, but you have what I would broadly call a spiritual side. And it really comes out in the music that you make, or more precisely, the part of you that makes the music. There's this baptismal moment in your career that you alluded to earlier. Can you tell me a a little more about that moment in 1975 when you were living in Cape Cod and you first heard John Coltrane's devotional recording a love supreme. Yeah. How, how did that come about? Well, I, I was divorced at the time, living with a jazz and blues pianist on the Cape, and he had an incredible record collection, you know, Ornette, Abdullah Ibrahim, who was Dollar Brand at the time, Paul Blay, Charles Mingus, Cecil Taylor, all the contemporary great improviser composers and he was out one night playing a gig I decided to put on a record just pick that one <laughs> if you believe in coincidences like that Any, anyway just just pick that one put it on and by the time it got to the third section something happened I suddenly very hard to explain I guess this is why I'm a musician and not so much a writer, something overcame me all of a sudden. I just, I, I, I went inside the music. The music took me. There was a presence in the room and that presence gave out a feeling of incredible love so powerful that I had never experienced anything like it, you know. Um, maybe it was like something like St. Paul walking along the road and, or Saul walking along the road and suddenly having this vision and falling to his knees. And it, it was that kind of moment. And I took out some manuscript paper and, and a pen and I started trying to write down the solo that McCoy Tyner was playing in that third section. And 
To this day, there's one phrase from that solo that I often insert <laughs> into my improvisations, kind of as a tribute to Coltrane and McCoy Tyner. Nobody's ever noticed it or mentioned it. There was suddenly a feeling of, okay, this is where I have to go. I have to meet these people. I have to get involved with this music. I wasn't thinking about career or anything. There's a movement in Love Supreme called Pursuance, and it sounds as though that was the message you were getting. Mm -hmm. This is what I have to pursue. This sound, this music, this spirit. Yeah. Yeah, there was no question in my mind, and it's probably the only time in my life that I really knew exactly what I was supposed to be doing. Let's take a moment to listen to your performance of John Coltrane's After the Rain from your solo album, For Coltrane, recorded live at Logan Hall in London in 1987. Raphael Ambert, a French saxophonist, has written a fascinating book called A Jazz Supreme about the spiritual dimensions of modern jazz. We're accustomed to speaking of spirituality in relation to classical composers like Olivier Messiaen with his quartet for the end of time or Arvo Pert, uh, but I wonder if that aspect of jazz that John Coltrane embodied gets a little bit shortchanged because of the association of jazz with New Orleans, drugs, prostitution, the bohemian nightlife, and so on. I mean, you heard something that I think is really central to jazz, but that often gets overlooked. Well, at the time I heard it, I, I knew nothing about jazz at all. Nothing. When I was a kid, I, I had a transistor radio I used to listen to in bed sometimes, and I would tune to jazz stations and be fascinated and say, wow, I never do something like that. That's incredible. You know, there was no jazz department at New England Conservatory at that time. I, I had no connection to it until this happened. So for me, this was my introduction to jazz. Now, retroactively, I, you know, I've been learning more about the history of it. Do you think there was something in Coltrane's music that spoke to you particularly? And was it something that was perhaps similar to what you heard in Bach's music? Because I know that Bach was a composer who had been incredibly important to you. No, it was beyond the music what spoke to me. And I, I actually heard that when I went to listen to McCoy Tyner in New York City one time. And before I went, I thought, well, um, 
okay, one of his signature things is that he played a lot of, of fourth chords, which many, many, many people carried on with. <laughs> but they don't sound like McCoy Tyner. No. And and I thought, well, okay, I, I've kind of heard a lot of this and and all that, but I, I decided to go anyway. And I sat at a table right at the front and... As he started playing, there was an energy that went so beyond what he was playing that I immediately felt I had been incredibly arrogant <laughs> to, to think and jaded to think like, oh, okay, I've, I've heard this. It was an experience and a transmission. It wasn't just somebody sitting there playing the piano. So after this revelation, you went back to Boston and you met... Charlie Bonacos, who used to teach at the Berkeley School. Yeah, he did. And then he left and just had private students all over the world. They would send cassette tapes to him. He would say whatever he had to say and play things and send it back to them. If you can imagine, there was no Zoom, you know, no cell phones, no computers, nothing. Anyway, he had a seven-month waiting list because he already had this incredible reputation. I studied with him for two years he, he was amazing, amazing teacher. He gave me a lot of exercises, a lot of things to listen to. If there was something that I felt uncomfortable doing, he made me do twice as much of it. Was it Bonacos who introduced you to Charlie Mariano? Before I actually started with, with Charlie Bonacos, I took a few lessons from Ray Santisi at Berkeley, you know, just, just until I could actually get in with, with Charlie Bonacos. While I was there, Ray was friends with Charlie Mariano, so I met Charlie through him, and we became friends. He was a great cook. He'd spent time in India, and he cooked Indian food. I used to go over and have dinner with him at his apartment, and he was one of Charlie Monacus's heroes, and I actually brought him to a lesson once <laughs> just to to make Charlie happy. But Mariano, I think, did suggest that you go to the Creative Music Studio in Woodstock, where the vibraphonist Carl Berger was running these workshops with some of the great improvisers. And it was there that you met people like Cecil Taylor, Don Cherry, Roscoe Mitchell, Widata Leo Smith, Anthony Davis, and Oliver Lake. Anthony Braxton. Anthony Braxton, of course, yes, (laughs) most importantly. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Uh, but tell me about your first meeting with Cecil Taylor. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, well, he was one of the guiding artists for a week at the Creative Music Studio. And Tulani Davis, who was very friendly with him, was up there too. And they were hanging out in the room where there was a pool table and there were practice rooms right around there. I felt like... The stuff I was playing wasn't everybody's cup of tea, but I thought he's going to hear it and he's going to know that I've heard him and that I relate to him and that, you know, there's some kind of similar aesthetic happening there. And so I went into a practice room and I played for about half an hour knowing that he was out there hearing it. And he didn't bang on the door and tell me to shut up or anything like that. (laughs) And uh, when I came out, he was standing there and he, he knew I had been playing for him. He kissed my hand and I wrote a poem for him. I gave that to him at one point. I think I gave him a rose. 
he, he was one of the few people in my life that I, other than that first piano teacher, who I was shy to speak to. You know, I was very intimidated by him. But he was very, very gracious. Was that the time that Cecil said to you that he heard in your work a new kind of lyricism? No, that was at uh, the Victoriaville Festival in Canada. We were both on the same festival, and I played a solo concert. And he came up afterwards, and he said, I, I hear a new lyricism. You know, I think that's a direction things could go in. At the time, I thought, what is he talking about? But he her actually heard a direction that I ended up going in years later. The most significant connection that you made at the Creative Music Studio was with the composer and saxophonist Anthony Braxton. How did you end up playing with Braxton? Did it immediately start there? He, he was there, and George Russell was one of the guiding artists for that week, and he was giving a workshop, and I was playing piano in that workshop. And Braxton stuck his head in the door. He happened to hear it. And afterwards, he said, well, each guiding artist would play a concert at the end of the week, their own concert and then something with the students. So for his own concert, he asked if I'd like to play a duo with him. And we improvised. It was incredible. It was like instant psychic connection. (laughs) I've almost never experienced anything like it since. And in fact... That concert is out on a recording now. The Creative Music Studio has put out some compilations, and that concert is out on the second compilation. And it sounds amazing. It sounds like we'd been playing together for 20 years. And then after that, he said he wanted me to be his pianist, and he was preparing to go on a tour. This was 1978 a creative music orchestra, creative orchestra. The creative orchestra music. Tour. Music, yes. (laughs) Anyway, so that was my my first flight, my first time to Europe, and my first professional real gig all in, in, in one, 1978. And that also is a wonderful recording. I love that recording. And then uh, we played together in different formats, different constellations for many years. The quartet, we, we were together for 10 years, but that didn't even begin until 1983. Prior to that, we, we played duos, played some quintet things. In Montreal at a club called The Rising Sun, we played there for a week, I remember. The people were mad that George Lewis wasn't there that I was there. Uh, George hadn't been able to make it and they wanted him, not me. (laughs) But it was okay, especially by the end of the week, you know, everything was okay. Then in 1983, Braxton formed the quartet with me and Jerry Hemingway and John Lindbergh. Later replaced by Mark Dresser. But I remember you're saying that the first time you did a gig with Anthony Braxton, he put a beer in your hand because you were playing so many notes and seemed nervous. Oh, well, okay. I I have to regress just a tiny bit there. When I was in Boston studying with Charlie Bonacus, 
I was friends with a guitarist named Baird Hersey, a composer, and he had a band called The Year of the Ear. And he was the composer and the conductor. They were playing really interesting music. I used to go hear them all the time. Uh, and Baird and I were friends. So he came over to my apartment one day and was trying to get me to improvise with him because I had only ever improvised for dance classes. I, I had never come out of that box and beyond that, that limitation. And I was really nervous about it. It felt like jumping off a cliff with... Without a parachute. Without a safety net underneath or, or like being on a high wire with no safety net underneath. If you fall, it's messy. So I I was scared, I guess. And Baird said to me, just start playing and don't stop. Okay, so that influenced me for years. <laughs> when we were rehearsing for the Creative Orchestra Tour with Braxton, I was still do, kind of doing that. And he came over to the piano with a beer and just said, yeah, you know, just have a beer, relax, don't play so many notes. And and suddenly, that was like a revelation, you know? So you were learning about space early on from Braxton. Yeah. I imagine that playing with him was a great inspiration because yeah. he was on the one hand really steeped in the work of John Coltrane and Eric Dolphy. And at the same time, he was immersed in contemporary classical music, Stockhausen, Cage, and so on. Yes. So he brought together the worlds that you knew best. Yes. It, it kind of allowed me an entry point into the music, really, because it was there was something familiar about it and yet something very unfamiliar. I felt very comfortable playing his music. Not that it wasn't difficult, it was. And half the time we were sight-reading things because he actually never wanted things to sound too practiced. He kind of wanted that that feeling of freshness and teetering on the edge, like you really didn't know what you were going to do. So he would bring some complex new piece into the dressing room before the concert and say, okay, we're going to play this tonight. Okay, there's no way you are going to play this exactly the way it's written, just having seen it, you know, and going on the stage half an hour later or something. But we would have these singing rehearsals back in the dressing room, you know? So we'd, we'd just be back there going like, da dee da 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 da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, you know? And that's how we would rehearse most of those pieces. I remember very few actual instrumental rehearsals. You were in the Braxton Quartet from 1983 until 1995, and you've described those years as being like a marriage. What kind of marriage was it? Well, it, they were like my family, that quartet. You know, we did a lot of tours. We did, I don't know how many recordings, 12 or more. Yeah, when you're spending time on the road, I, I imagine a lot of ensembles feel like this. Spending a lot of time traveling, playing, eating together, a lot of time on trains together, talking. And I didn't have a family outside of that. Uh, I mean, yes, I had my parents and my sister and her husband, but I didn't have kind of an everyday family. They became my family. 
so not only the friendship with them, but the music. Suddenly, when the quartet was no more, that was... It must have been very difficult. Extreme. It, it was extremely traumatic. Yeah. yeah. Extremely traumatic. But, you know, things go on and people change. And I, I know Anthony felt that he needed to move on in other directions. If somebody feels they need to do that, of course they need to do that. It's just that there was no preparation or warning or closure. One day we were all together and the next not. So, yeah, it was, it was sad. It was a big loss. <laughs> Three years before the Braxton Quartet disintegrated, you went to Sweden. You were in Stockholm. You heard a Swedish group that included the bassist Anders Jormann. And it sounds like you had an experience comparable to, if not as intense as that experience in Cape Cod. You, you heard a new sound. I did hear a new sound. There, there was a festival called Solo 92. I think that's what it was called, 1992 in Stockholm. Various musicians were invited to play there on their own and with each other. One of those festivals where people are thrown together who've never played together before. And I heard some of the Scandinavian musicians. I, I heard Anders and I also heard Barry Guy for the first time. So that was doubly important for me, the, the Brit British bassist Barry Guy. But at that festival, I suddenly became aware of, of a kind of a Scandinavian sound that I felt very attracted to. And it kind of called forth lyrical quality of my my own music, of my own sensibilities, that other than some of the ballads I played, I had really not been expressing that. Because for one thing, I was sort of at that time a woman in a man's world. And I felt like I had to, I, I didn't want to be seen as a kind of romantic woman figure. But hearing them just opened this this door stuff came rushing out uh, a few years after that when I, I met Annette Peacock here in Woodstock I decided I wanted to do a recording of her music and approached ECM about it I, I had wanted to do something for them and had heard they were also interested but I never felt up to that time that I had a project that was right and suddenly this felt right it was one of those times when everything just clicks into place. Annette Peacock is, is a fascinating enigma in the history of jazz and vocal music. She was married to both Paul Bland and Gary Peacock, who were also collaborators. She beguiled David Bowie, who nearly made a record with her. She was also musically and personally a very seductive figure. She wrote and sang these somber and kind of eerie songs. I so I wonder why what was it? why Annette Peacock? What was it about that music that spoke to you? I mean, I I wouldn't necessarily connect her singing to the Nordic sound that you discovered. So I'm wondering what was it about Annette Peacock's work that made you want to record it with a piano trio? It also somehow was a synthesis of contemporary classical aesthetics and jazz. In, in, in a similar way that I felt I could relate to Anthony's compositions. I felt I could relate to hers. 
Do you think that in order to make that leap outside your comfort zone, to make that leap into a new kind of expression, an expression that was very different from the Cecil Taylor-like energy music that you were known for at the time, do you think you needed to work through those ideas with songs that someone else had written? Um, possibly. I mean, her music was definitely a catalyst for me. Those songs gave me um, a possibility to explore certain aspects of, of my own musical direction. One of the musicians you recruited for your Annette Peacock album, Nothing Ever Was Anyway, a beautiful title, was Gary Peacock, her former husband, the bassist. Both he and Paul Motion, the drummer on the recording, had worked in trios led by Paul Blay himself, another ex-husband of Annette Peacock, and also with Bill Evans. So your rhythm section had a lot of history, and it must have been remarkable to record with them. Yes. First, I, I had planned to do a solo recording. And she said, well, why don't, why don't we ask Gary, because he lives around here, so I'll, I'll ask him. She had the idea to do that and made that connection. And then I said, well, okay, if Gary's going to play, might as well be a trio. And Paul Motion and I had a history. We did duo and trio concerts over the years. So why don't I ask Paul? At the time, like I said, I was not aware of a lot of jazz history. I, I would hear a recording I liked and, oh, that's the Paul Blay recording Annette Peacock music. Ah, really interesting. But I didn't really pay attention to who else would be on the recording. So I I came to it from a very sort of naive place, I guess. Now, of course, looking back on it, it's it's like all the people I've played with, incredible, their histories. If I had known... Maybe not knowing was easier. Maybe it was better not to know. Yes, maybe, maybe, in a way, yeah. Yeah, I just kind of forged ahead and had these ideas, and okay, let's get these people. And, and the person you worked with on this recording, your, your first album for ECM Records, was ECM's director, Manfred Eicher. Was he also someone who helped give you a kind of permission to move into this different realm of expression? Yeah, he, he was a real guiding energy. He, he was very there with the music and because he himself is a bassist classical bass player he really understands the music and he would make suggestions that were would often be things i hadn't thought of you know that were very good suggestions so he he was guiding the music in a sense as you know because you were there at that amaryllis recording session right i remember that recording session like it was yesterday and I especially remember an inspired suggestion that Manford had, uh, which was to have you perform what he called free ballads. Yes. These were ballads based on free improvisation. And we're going to listen to one of those free ballads. It's the title track from Amaryllis. Thank you. 
Amaryllis starts with Gary playing these notes, and then you come in. I mean, I remember being in the studio and feeling a kind of shiver when you entered that piece. Do you do you have a strong memory of how you created this ballad? Yeah, I'll never forget it. First of all, when people would say free music, I never thought of an actual song being free music. And when, when Manfred said, let's try some free ballads, that was like a revelation to me. It was like a <laughs> light bulb going off. So Gary started playing this, this phrase, very simple phrase, which he repeated throughout. And it, it was, da-da-dum, bum, 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 da-da-dum, bum, bum. Very, very simple. It's something that I, I've discovered subsequently that not everyone can do. They'll, they'll start adding stuff, flourishes, and changing it around. And I've kind of given up trying to play that piece with anyone else. Well, it did become a piece because I liked the melody that, that happened. What I love about this piece is that it has this quality of heartbreak and at the same time there's this feeling of insurgent hope you know it's it's not defeated you know that that album really marked a shift in your work with this growing emphasis on what Cecil Taylor described as the lyrical aspect of your playing even the what we might call the romantic side of your musical personality um, that was the theme of the piece that I wrote about you at the time uh, in the New York Times. But in subsequent years, as I've listened more closely to your earlier work, I've come to think that that whole argument was a bit overstated because both of those elements have always been present in your music. Yes, in one form or another, in one form or another. And they still are. I find now that when... I'm playing more on the energy side of things, that that's informed by the other more lyrical stuff that I've been doing. Or there's a different sense of space or breath and, and grounding. Also playing with Reggie Workman's ensemble really created, I, I feel, a lot of grounding in my playing. This was the ensemble that sometimes also included Oliver Lake or Don Byron. Jo Joseph Jarman. Joseph Jarman, right. Yeah, and Andrew Surreal. Speaking of Andrew Surreal, you seem to connect really powerfully with drummers, and you've made some incredible duet albums with drummers, much as Cecil Taylor did. You've recorded with Tyshawn Sori, with Eddie Prevost, with Jerry Hemingway, a uh, former colleague in the Braxton Group, of course and also with the South African drummer, Louis Maholo Maholo. Were there any drummers you especially enjoyed working with? All of them. Playing with Louis was an incredible experience. We, we talked a little bit, a very tiny bit, about what we might do. And I, I said, do you want to play in any of that music? And he said, no, no, let, let's just improvise. There, there were incredible rhythmic aspects that, that really only happened when I played with him, I think. The album is called Sibanye, We Are One, and it has this intense spiritual unity. 
I think we should listen to an excerpt of you playing with Louis Maholo Maholo. about how you initially resisted Cecil Taylor's suggestion that perhaps you'd arrived at this new lyricism because you wanted to compete with the guys. And you felt that somehow it would be perceived as too feminine if you were playing in a more lyrical style. Maybe, yeah. Did you experience much gender discrimination in the years that you were playing? Nope, nope. Everybody I played with was incredibly respectful and just treated me like one of the group not less not more i was held to the same standards it was about who was playing the music and how they played not whether they were black or white or man or woman or whatever today there's a heightened sensitivity around that question of representation in jazz especially uh, the representation of women over the last couple of years, especially since Me Too, new groups have formed to defend the rights of women in jazz and improvised music. What are your feelings about those efforts? I think it's great that they're doing it, but I personally did not really experience problems in that way when I was just playing early on. And I have to also say, because you mentioned competitive, at the beginning, I definitely felt I needed to prove myself and I wanted people to hear me. It, it was a way of being heard as a human being and understood, not just appreciated for the music, but it, it was like they were hearing me <laughs> in the music. And I wanted to be heard by my peers more than anything. I have to say now, I don't feel competitive anymore. I, I feel it's about the music itself, and I will not fight for a gig ever or for recognition or anything. What are you listening to now? Uh, do you still listen to classical music? What, what are the kinds of music that move you these days? Honestly, I don't listen to a lot of music. Part of that is I just need a lot of space and silence. And because when I listen to something, I really get into it. I can't just put it on and it's in the background, you know, and I'm doing something else. It doesn't work that way. It takes my whole attention. When was the last time you sat down and listened to A Love Supreme? Well, I think two years ago, a friend was visiting. My friend Raymond 
McDonald saxophone player, Scottish saxophone player who I play with. And we were sitting in my kitchen and we played it for two hours, just over and over and over. Maybe it was even more, probably more than two hours. And when we would be on tour in his car, sometimes we would just play that for the entire time, the entire drive. Did it stir some memories of the Cape Cod experience? Does it still have the same magic for you? Yeah, I mean, it, it, the shock value of it, of that experience was not there. You know, that that's had been tempered, but it still affected me the same way, affected him the same way. And I hear it's affected other people have had a very similar first experience with that particular recording. I mean, you're not alone. There are so many other musicians who've had similar epiphanies around that recording. And you've gone on to make very different kinds of music. You've played yeah. with a guitarist, Tsiji Munoz, who was very influenced by Coltrane, and particularly that recording. Oh, Tsiji Munoz, yes. Another person I feel deeply, a deep heart connection, you know, in that music. But you, you asked me who I listen to. First of all, I listen to stuff that people give me or send me. I listen to things that my students have done, people in my residencies over the years. They've done some incredible stuff. In particular, there's a woman saxophone player from Buenos Aires, Camila Nebia, who has amazing, they're all amazing musicians down there. And then I listen, I've been listening some to Norwegian hardanger fiddle player named Benedict Maurer Seth. She also records for ECM. Very beautiful. I, I listen to some, you know, Scandinavian folk music, Lena Villamark, the singer. I worked with her with Anders Jormin in a quintet of his. African music, I love any African music. For a while, I was listening obsessively to Paul Simon's Graceland. Yeah, just, just a lot of different things. I've even been listening to a few of my own things, which I tend to avoid because I'll always just often feel critical or hear stuff I should have done or shouldn't have done or wish I could change, and it feels stressful. But recently, I had the experience of listening to a concert I played in Baltimore with Michael Formanek and Eric Kennedy, a drummer who lives in Baltimore, trio, improvised. I had made a comment about wishing that could come out sometime on some label, and Michael said, well, what about putting it out on my Bandcamp page? So at some point, that concert is going to be out on his Bandcamp page. And I listened to it, and it was like a revelation to me, like, hey, this... Actually, I like this, you know? It sounds as though you had the same revelation when you heard the duet recording that you made with Taishan Sori at the kitchen, yeah. The Adornment of Time. Yeah. So I, I, I listened to a little bit of my own music and uh, or music I've, I've played with other people. And Bach, I'll, I'll listen to Bach. I have a couple recordings of various friends of mine playing the Bach violin sonatas. Uh, one, uh, Michelle Makarski with Keith Jarrett on ECM, which is a beautiful recording. The Mozart Requiem, which just tears me up. I, I actually can barely listen to it. I love it so much. And 
it affects me so deeply. Um, Beethoven, string quartets, the Ninth Symphony, which I actually sang in the chorus of the Ninth Symphony with the New England Conservatory Chorus and the Boston Symphony at Avery Fisher Hall. I will never forget that, you know. There's a lot, there's a lot of incredible music. I just often don't put it on. Over the years, you've worked with European avant-garde improvisers, leaders of the AACM, Scandinavian musicians, up-and-coming American artists, jazz musicians like Joe Lovano. You've been a leader. You've been a soloist. What do you feel gives unity to the work as a whole? Is it a certain approach to pianism? Is it a certain expressiveness? Um, no, I, I think what brings it together is jumping into each experience in a fresh way that is so informed by all the other stuff I've done. I mean, it, it's like a giant web and every part of it is significant and somehow interdependent with all the other parts of it. They all feel connected. You know, everything that I do, I feel like it's me in my playing, you know, my aesthetic and my sensibilities and I'm there in all of it and I relate to all of it. Some of it is more one aspect, some of it is more another aspect, and some of it kind of brings in everything. Marilyn, a few years ago you created and directed a multimedia production called the Cy Twombly Dreamhouse. How did that come about? Yeah, Cy Twombly Dreamhouse. Um, well, he's my favorite visual artist, has been for a long time, and um, I applied for a Guggenheim grant to do this project, which involved five musicians, three dancers, and video projections of 12 of his works on paper that I had seen in an exhibition, and I had the catalog. And I got the grant, so I was able to do the project up here in Woodstock. And... Uh, it, it, it was incredible. I'm very into incorporating dance, poetry, visual art into the performances. I get tremendous inspiration from, from all of that. And um, I think it was a successful performance. I wish we had had more opportunities to do it, but it was expensive. And, uh, and the opportunities just weren't there at the time. Do you see your music as being not just your profession or, or your art, but being almost your life? Do you feel that your work as a creative musician has allowed you a deeper immersion in life, or has it in some ways taken you away from, from ordinary life, so to speak? Yeah. Oh, okay. There's a lot there. First of all, I never started out looking at music as a profession. It was more a need to be in it with those people who were playing it. It, it was a sense of belonging to something like this is going to be my community. Your calling. Yes, it was a calling. 
really at the time when I got into it, I had no thoughts of doing it as a career, you know, making money, all that kind of thing. I just wanted to, to do it and I wanted to meet those people and be part of their community. And then of course it, it evolved into much more. It absolutely became my life. As far as ordinary life, I, I don't know how much I ever was even in that. When, when I was a kid, I used to just read all the time. That's mostly, I had friends, but mostly what I wanted to do was read all the time. I love people, but I, I tend to be a little bit of an introvert and like to spend a lot of time on my own. And I've lived on my own for a long time. I, I would say this past year of basically not playing music and not listening to much music, I think has been a little bit of a break from all that, you know, maybe recovering from all the, the touring and stuff. I, I've never really been that into so-called ordinary life, except <laughs> there are Buddhist stories about, yeah, you should just make a cup of tea and everything is there, just making that cup of tea. In that sense, yeah, I could see being into that. People would talk about television shows or this or that, and I, I wouldn't even know what they were talking about most of the time. I just, I was doing different things. By the way, many times in this conversation, I've referred to my young self as a kid and young people as kids. I remember being told not to do that, that kids are baby goats, but I decided to do it anyway. Just, just so you know. Patty Smith does in her book, Just Kids. I think it's fine. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it just, just felt right, felt right. So that's what I said. Marilyn, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for joining me on Myself with Others. Thanks so much. It's, it's a real pleasure. It's been great to talk with you, Adam. Really. listening to Marilyn Crispell on Myself with Others, a podcast by Adam Schatz. Myself with Others is produced by Richard Sears. Thank you to ECM Records and Intact Records. The theme for Myself with Others is performed by Richard Sears. All other musical selections are performed by Marilyn Crispell. Thank you for listening and please subscribe.